What the world needs now is positivity. Connecting, relating, and being human together is where it's at. Hi there, honey German, and I know life happens, but trust, you got this. And State Farm got us. It feels good knowing that State Farm agents are there to help you choose the right coverage with great support 24-7. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss host of To Live and Die in L.A. And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. By the late 1990s, Miami South Beach had become one of the biggest tourist destinations in the United States, an international epicenter for fashion and nightlife that inspired films, television, and music. I think it was still a great, grand destination to be at. The rich and famous came in droves to South Beach, falling in love with the laid-back lifestyle, and many of them began calling the city home. Among them was one of the world's most famous fashion designers. Versace was a global figure, made Miami Beach his home. To most of the people on the beach, he was just you know, one of the people. But despite his low profile and his worldwide success, on the morning of July 15th, 1997, Gianni Versace, at just 50 years old and at the helm of an enormous fashion empire, would be killed on the street in front of his home and the city he fell in love with. Essentially, I ambushed him, just walked up behind him and shot him. Hi, I'm Kareem Tapsh. And I'm Joey Dowd. Balmy weather, beautiful beaches, and decadent nightlife may be what most people think of when they think Florida. But as Miami natives, we like to say that South Florida is a sunny place for shady people. Every week, we'll bring you a new story of a true crime case committed right here under the Florida sun. From the outrageous to the utterly bizarre. Think you've heard it all? Think again. This is Paradise Lost, Crime in Miami. Three miles off the shore of Miami is a nine-mile-long island called Miami Beach. A mix of condominiums, single-family homes, commerce, and public space bordered to the west by Biscayne Bay and to the east by the Atlantic Ocean. The southern tip is known as South Beach, the party central synonymous with fancy cars, free-flowing booze, and an anything-goes attitude. South Beach has an image as a sexy, alluring place where good times are all but guaranteed and where trouble can easily find you. But as hard as it is to believe, that wasn't always the case. There was a time when South Beach was all but ignored by locals and tourists alike. In fact, in the 1970s, South Beach was known for something different. Oh yeah, when I came on, it was pretty much a retirement community. 
That's right. In the 1970s, Miami was home to the largest community of Jewish retirees in the country. They used to look at the elderly people. It reminded me of land crabs because they would be there on Ocean Drive and they'd have their lounge chairs, get up in the morning, have their breakfast, and they would migrate in great masses across Ocean Drive and out onto the beach. And you'd see that reverse migration about four o'clock. They would have their supper and then beach dive. Uh, you know, the beach was a very, very quiet place. That's someone who saw the change firsthand. My name is Richard Barreto, and at the time I was chief of police with the city of Miami Beach. Barreto had a 31-year law enforcement career at the city of Miami Beach, rising the ranks from police officer to chief through three decades. I came on in 1970 and left in 2001. Richard Barreto saw drastic change in South Beach during his tenure. When he started on the force, the biggest worries they would deal with were disputes between elderly neighbors and occasional petty crimes like shoplifting. But by 1980, it all started to change. We had the Mariel boat lift. Starting in April of 1980, the Cuban government, in response to civil unrest, opened up the port of Maria for all that wanted to leave the country, allowing boats from the U.S. to come and pick up relatives. But the catch was you also had to take anyone who wanted to go. Between April and October of 1980, over 100,000 people left Cuba and received asylum in the United States, most of them settling in Miami. So a lot of uh, the people from the burial boat lift ended up on my beach. Castro opening up his jails and unloading all his longtime prisoners and dumping them into South Florida. So it was a trying time for us, there's no question. A lot of more violent people, and we had a lot of shootings, we had a lot of uh, you know, criminal problems. Now, it's important to contextualize here that the overwhelming majority of folks who came on the Mariel boat lifts were decent, hardworking people seeking to flee the oppression of Fidel Castro's communist Cuba. But there was indeed a criminal element that came along with them since Castro had taken advantage of the mass exodus to empty his prisons and insane asylums. And then you had, you know, compounding the whole thing is you had the 80s, you had the, the cocaine wars and the drug trade was really bolstered, you know, uh, a lot of smuggling was taking place. A lot of drugs were in South Florida in general, and Miami Beach naturally experienced a lot of that problem that came from that as well. And, you know, this huge crime wave that we were, had never experienced before. So it's something we had to deal with. And South Beach was going through a rough transitional period. The elderly started dying off and many relocated further north to Palm Beach and Boca Raton. Landlords began neglecting their properties. You know, the broken windows theory was kind of taking hold where, you know, people, you know, had a, you know, rundown building and then the guy next door decided he wasn't going to invest a lot in his building and therefore it became rundown. By the mid-1980s, the world caught wind of what was going on in Miami Beach. Miami had become the murder capital of the U.S. and these headlines in turn inspired some pretty iconic films and television shows. Scarface and Miami Vice both captured the danger of Miami Beach of the time and in their own ways, also helped spur its eventual revival. And then, of course, it, it transitioned uh, when the, design, you know, the historic the preservation phenomena occurred. 
Spearheaded by activist Barbara Bear Capipin and designer Leonard Horowitz, there was a grassroots movement to preserve the Art Deco architecture that was predominant throughout South Beach. Fighting city hall, real estate speculators, and absentee landlords, activists were able to save hundreds of buildings from the wrecking ball while getting some owners to remodel them. Horowitz developed an appealing pastel color palette that made the old building shine with new light. Locals were excited and encouraged by the efforts, and outsiders started taking notice. Now again, more and more investors came in. They saw the, uh, the, you know, the renaissance starting to take place, saw the popularity of places like Clevelander, and, uh, and they began to renovate some of these hotels and make them really nice places to be. And, uh, and more and more people, particularly in the movie industry and all, started calling this a destination, which now brought the onlookers and everybody else that came with that. By the early 1990s, South Beach and Miami in general had reinvented itself as a destination. Major celebrities like Madonna and Sylvester Stallone started coming to party and ended up making the city their home. Fashion photographers became enamored with the setting, many models started moving there, and a large gay community began relocating to the area. South Beach became the it place to visit. People would sit out at these beautiful sidewalk cafes with cocktails, how the beautiful women were coming. It was just a very attractive place to be. It was really incredible to see. You know, to go from this really tiny, quiet city, this hugely popular destination. One of the key figures of this era was iconic fashion designer Gianni Versace. The Italian fashion designer moved to the city in 1992. Versace first discovered South Beach while on vacation. Jerry Powers, publisher of Ocean Drive magazine and a friend of Versace, said, quote, the cabbie took him to South Beach and he fell in love with the place, end quote. In the late 1970s, while he was in his early 30s, Gianni Versace, with his bold, exotic clothes, became the hottest designer in the Milan fashion scene. Launching what would be a legendary career and igniting a bitter rivalry with Giorgio Armani. The saying went, Armani dresses the wife, Versace dresses the mistress. In an interview with Dateline, Vogue editor-in-chief Anna Winter remarked, quote, not only was he a brilliant designer, he was a brilliant marketer. He was the first to bring the celebrities into the front rows, end quote. Not only did Versace become one of the most famous designers of the era, he's also credited with helping usher in the era of the supermodel. Linda Evangelista, Christy Turlington, and Naomi Campbell became household names of the day thanks to their collaborations with Versace. His design empire was huge and growing, with hundreds of millions of dollars a year in sales and over 130 boutiques worldwide. Known for its Medusa head logo, the clothes were bold and distinct. A mix of Baroque prints and animal skin patterns with a touch of an S&M vibe and ultra-tight fits. Versace designs were vibrant, sultry, and fun. That flashy style found a perfect home in South Beach. Versace first visited in 1991 and immediately fell in love with South Beach. By the next year, he purchased and restored a former mansion-turned-apartment building on Ocean Drive. The extravagant mansion, now known as Casa Casorina, is a three-story Mediterranean-style house built in 1930 and modeled after a 16th-century castle. It was later converted into an apartment building known as the Amsterdam Palace. Versace bought the property in 1992 for $2.9 million and extensively renovated it into his private home. He quickly acclimated and made Miami his home, becoming a beloved figure in the community and helping attract the rich and famous to the city. 
His influence helped transform South Beach from a quiet domestic seaside community to an international destination of hedonistic fun and excess. The city seemed to be exactly what Versace needed at that point in his life, as he told journalist Charlie Rose. Quote, Miami's cool. Miami is a place where you can be yourself. Miami is simple, beautiful. The weather's fantastic. I'm very serene there. End quote. Well, I think Ocean Drive was, was the uh, ground zero for what was happening in Miami Beach. And, and Versace was, you know, part of that. I mean, he was, he was a global figure. Came to Miami Beach as home. You know, and uh, to most of the people on the beach, he was just, you know, one of the people because he got the morning and sauntered down to the, to the you know, his cafe and got his coffee every day and nobody paid him much mind. But somebody did pay him mind. Because in the summer of 1997, Gianni Versace would be brutally murdered point-blank range outside his South Beach home. As an actor, a producer, and a proud Latino father, my days can get very busy, which is why I make sure to dedicate time to what's important like supporting my community through my work, sharing my Colombian and Venezuelan culture, and being present for my family, which is everything to me. Hey everyone, it's Wilmer Valderrama. And when reflecting on what matters most, I start by giving thanks for good support in my life whenever I need to make the big decisions. How about you? If it's insurance you need, State Farm is there to help you choose the right coverage for you. And State Farm offers great support 24-7. Just call an agent. State Farm is also a big supporter of My Cultura Podcast Network by helping to share our Latinx voices. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. 
Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Andrew Cunanan was born in 1969 in Southern California to a Filipino-American father and Italian-American mother. Cunanan identified as gay at a young age, all the way back in high school. He was also keenly into fashion and looking sharp. One former classmate remembers him having an air about him that made him seem years beyond his time. He was extremely smart with a genius IQ, according to CBS News. He enrolled in the pricey and prestigious The Bishop School in San Diego's wealthy La Jolla neighborhood. Now, even though he was still in high school, he was known for being in the gay nightlife scene. He'd walk around with an entourage and always pay the bill. You're probably asking, how did he have all his money for a prestigious private school and taking out groups of people to gay bars? He'd say that it came from some distant family, but the reality is he would hook up with wealthy, older men who paid for his lifestyle. Basically, he was a young gay escort relying on rich sugar daddies to fund his lifestyle. Some of these men were over 40 years old. Graduating in 1987, his superlative was most likely to be remembered. In the yearbook under his senior photo, he chose a French quote from King Louis XV. I don't speak French. I'm probably going to butcher this. Apremont le deluge. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not how you say it. What does it mean? Okay, thank you. Thank you, French expert. Uh, After me, the deluge. His dad ended up moving back to the Philippines, evading arrest from embezzlement charges, according to Time magazine. Cunanan went on to UC San Diego, but dropped out and moved to San Francisco. There, he continued to hook up with wealthy older men and lived off of their patronage. And he wasn't just randomly meeting men. He targeted people he wanted to meet. According to San Diego restaurateur Michael Williams, he would research older wealthy gay men who didn't have families and put himself in their social circles so they'd meet. That's how he lived. He had no career ambitions. His goal was to live off of the wealth of older men. And he was open about that, even with the men he was seeing who financially supported him. One of his main patrons was Norman Blackford, a conservative retired millionaire in his 60s. Blackford let Cunanan stay in a seaside condo and hillside house in La Jolla. According to the Washington Post and Vanity Fair, Blackford gave Cunanan a $2,500 a month allowance and a 1996 Infiniti i30T to drive around in. They went on trips to Paris and New York to see Broadway shows. Cunanan's relationship with Blackford also granted him access to other wealthy gay elite men and invites to lots of cocktail parties. Cunanan was always able to charm the other guests, but he told stories that even the guests doubted were true. According to Vanity Fair, he said he had been married to a Jewish woman and that his father-in-law was the head of the Mossad. In another story, he had been married to a Jewish princess and fathered a daughter. That story was complete with pictures he would show off to guests. In another story, he said his father was a Filipino general who was bisexual with a young lover, or that his father was an Israeli millionaire, or that his father was a Fifth Avenue aristocrat. Bottom line, Cunanan had a knack for lying and a disconnect from the truth. Cunanan was also known for being able to change his appearance, and he sometimes went by different names, including Andrew Da Silva, though the reason why is unknown. That's how Michael Williams knew him. Now, according to Vanity Fair, Cunanan allegedly met Versace briefly at a San Francisco nightclub. Versace's family, however, denies the two ever met. 
Cunanan had various groups of friends. In 1993, he met Jeff Trail through his mutual friend, Michael Williams. Jeff was the opposite of Andrew, conservative and quiet. He was also a gay Gulf War veteran, so he kept a low profile. They'd go target shooting together. Jeff was an excellent marksman, having been a small arms instructor in the Navy. Cunanan was apparently very knowledgeable about guns, knowing different calibers, sizes, and weights. The two became close friends, but were apparently never intimate. Cunanan was also into violent sex and S&M. According to former roommate Eric Greenman, it was, quote, extreme, end quote. There were whips walking around in shackles. He had bondage videos. Cunanan was the dominator. But wherever these sex acts took place, it wasn't in the apartment. In the 10 months they lived together, Cunanan never brought anyone back to the apartment. There was one person who was into Cunanan's rough sex. In December 1995, Cunanan met Minneapolis architect David Madsen in a San Francisco bar. They began a long-distance relationship. But when they were together, they had what was described by mutual friend Doug Stubblefield as rough sex. Though, according to friends, David wouldn't let Andrew go as far as he wanted. Cunanan told friends that Madsen was the, quote, man of my dreams, the man I want to marry, end quote. However, later Madsen ended up distancing himself from Cunanan at the urging of friends. Sometimes Cunanan would disappear and become unreachable, which gave Madsen an uneasy feeling. Cunanan's friend Jeff Trail had also been keeping his distance. He moved to Minneapolis for a job opportunity. And remember, Madsen also lived in Minneapolis. The reason for these disappearances was that Cunanan was living in La Jolla with Norman Blackford and hiding it from his friends. But that relationship ended in September of 1996. Andrew was confiding to friends that he was broke. He planned to move back to San Francisco and convince Madsen that he inspired him to turn his life around and find real work. In April of 1997, before moving to San Francisco, Cunanan told some friends in San Diego that he was going to Minneapolis to take care of some business with Trail. They had a farewell dinner for Cunanan before moving to San Francisco at California Cuisine. What none of his friends knew was Cunanan had bought a one-way ticket to Minneapolis. Madsen picked him up from the airport and took him out to dinner with some friends. Cunanan was back to his old habits of trying to impress people and making up stories. He bought Madsen a gold Cartier watch and had him show it off at dinner. He told everyone he drove around in a Rolls Royce as a kid. He also started reusing other people's stories as his own. He said he made sound dampening equipment for film sets, which is how Norman Blackford made his millions. Or that he was setting up a factory in Mexico to make movie sets, which is what another friend of his in San Diego did. Cunanan presumably stayed with Madsen on Friday night, the day he arrived. On Saturday, he apparently stayed at Trail's apartment. Trail was out of town, but left a key for him under the mat. After an argument with Trail, Cunanan took Trail's gun and went to Madsen's apartment. He called Trail up and told him to come over. When Trail arrived, he beat him to death with a hammer. Trail's body was then rolled up in a rug. We're not entirely sure what happened next, but presumably Cunanan kept Madsen hostage at gunpoint for a few days. They eventually left in Madsen's Jeep. Later, Cunanan and Madsen were spotted north of Minneapolis eating lunch at a bar. On May 3rd, six days after Trail's murder, David Madsen's body was found on the shore of Rush Lake near Rush City, Minnesota. He had gunshot wounds on his head and back. The next day, Cunanan drove to Chicago and brutally killed 72-year-old Lee Miglin, a real estate developer. It's not clear if Miglin and Cunanan knew each other, 
Miglin was married, and his wife, who founded a cosmetics company and was somewhat of a celebrity on Home Shopping Network, was out of town. There were no signs of forced entry into his home. Cunanan bound Miglin's hands and feet, wrapped his head with duct tape, then stabbed him with a screwdriver more than 20 times and slit his throat with a hacksaw. Cunanan spent the night in Miglin's bed, left a half-eaten ham sandwich in the library, and took a bath and shave in his bathroom. He left in Miglin's Lexus. Somewhere between $8,000 and $10,000 in cash and a few of Miglin's suits were also missing. Miglin's family says the killing was a random act, but a former FBI agent in a Vanity Fair interview says it's unlikely Cunanan would have tortured and brutally murdered him without some motive. On the run with Miglin's stolen car, Cunanan made three phone calls in Pennsylvania. On May 9th, five days later, Cunanan shot and killed cemetery caretaker William Reese and took his red Chevy pickup truck. Unlike the other murders, which definitely or possibly had personal motives, this killing was believed to only be to take Reese's truck. With this new truck, Cunanan was apparently on his way down to Miami. On May 12th, he checks into Normandy Plaza, a dumpy hotel in Miami Beach where he pays $36 a night for a room in cash. The FBI are on his trail and he makes the FBI 10 most wanted fugitive list in June. But for two months, he basically hides in plain sight. The FBI searched gay bars and hangout spots, but mostly focused north in Fort Lauderdale under the belief that, quote, He was a member of a secret gay organization with a membership of rich gay men, end quote, according to the Miami Herald. Cunanan reportedly spent his time doing drugs, eating fast food, and going out to gay nightclubs. There were a few missed opportunities to get him. Back in May, police made a huge mistake when they confirmed a news report that they were tracking Miglin's car phone. The Chicago County Sheriff said, quote, once he heard that, he'd have been a fool to use a phone after that, end quote. Cunanan pawned some gold coins for cash that belonged to Miglin, his elderly victim. He used his real name and gave his thumbprint and hotel address. But at that time, the slips were mailed to police and processed manually. So it got buried in a pile of paperwork. Early in July, a worker at Miami Subs Grill alerted police that he had spotted Cunanan. But by the time the police got there, he was gone. On July 14, 1997, Andrew Cunanan was out of money. He left the hotel without paying his bill. He would eventually make his way down to South Beach to Loomis Park, directly across the street from the home of Gianni Versace. As an actor, a producer, and a proud Latino father, my days can get very busy, which is why I make sure to dedicate time to what's important like supporting my community through my work, sharing my Colombian and Venezuelan culture, and being present for my family, which is everything to me. Hey everyone, it's Wilmer Valderrama. And when reflecting on what matters most, I start by giving thanks for good support in my life whenever I need to make the big decisions. How about you? If it's insurance you need, State Farm is there to help you choose the right coverage for you. And State Farm offers great support 24-7. Just call an agent. State Farm is also a big supporter of My Cultura Podcast Network by helping to share our Latinx voices. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials 
cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. According to the Miami Herald, it was a beautiful morning in South Beach on July 15th, 1997. Gianni Versace went through his usual morning routine. He walked from his house down to the News Cafe on Ocean Drive, a famous coffee shop and newsstand, where he spent $15 on coffee and five magazines. Business Week, Vogue, Entertainment Weekly, People, and The New Yorker. Yeah, I mean, every morning he went down to the News Cafe and got his coffee. It was a short walk for him, and he uh, walked back. Walking back to his mansion around 8.30 a.m., Versace approaches the gate to unlock it. Andrew Kananen, uh, I don't know whether he was stalking him or he already knew a little bit about his lifestyle, but he laid in wait for him and essentially ambushed him when he returned to his place on Ocean Drive. Kunanen, wearing shorts and a baseball cap, walks up, pulls out a gun, and shoots Versace twice in the back of the head. Just walked up behind him and shot him. Cunanan bolts away. Versace's friend, Lazaro Quintana, and Versace's longtime partner, Antonio D'Amico, race outside. Quintana gives chase to Cunanan, yelling, quote, you bastard, end quote. He chases him down an alley, but Cunanan points his gun at him, and Quintana stops chasing him. Back at the mansion, Versace is bleeding out on the coral steps of the house, dead. There would later be the famous macabre photos of the pool of blood on the steps. Even darker, one man ripped pictures of Versace's dresses from a magazine to soak up some of Versace's blood, presumably as a memento or to sell later. Shortly after the shooting, Miami Beach Police Chief Richard Barreto gets the news. 
were you aware of Versace before he was murdered? Hi, be very honest, I didn't know who he was. I remember my secretary called me and said, hey, this guy Versace was talking. I mean, to be blunt, I, I asked her, who the fuck's Versace? Barreto told us the police were able to move extremely fast because of one crucial error Cunanan made without realizing it. The time of day he committed the murder. There's three shifts in the police department. A day shift, an afternoon shift, and a midnight shift. Our midnight shift gets off at 9 in the morning. So most of them are close to the police station because they're getting ready to turn their cars in. Our day shift comes on at 7 o'clock. They've already gone on through roll call and they're on the street. So at right around this 8 o'clock when he's shot, the call comes out. There is twice as many police officers there for us to address this problem than there would have been after 9 o'clock. So the midnight shift would have already been gone. They were still there. So we had the whole midnight shift and the whole day shift that we could throw at this problem, start setting up roadblocks, start, you know, isolating evidence, start, uh, you know, cordoning off the areas and doing the things that we had to do. And that helped us a lot. How quickly after the murder did it become clear that Andrew Cunanan was the main suspect? Well, very quickly he became the suspect because one of our officers that was deployed to, you know, an area parking lot found a, uh, a vehicle, car door still open, and identification spilled on the ground. Like whoever was in that car got out of there by the skin of his teeth. And uh, we, the identification pointed to Andrew Kinnanen. The FBI and other agencies got involved. Kinnanen was already wanted for four other murders. Now, he became the most wanted man in America and was considered armed and dangerous. The city was basically locked down, and a huge manhunt began. Now, Miami Beach is an island with a limited number of bridges connecting it to the mainland. So Beretta told us how it's relatively easy to set up checkpoints at the main roads to leave. The mayor, Seymour Gelmer, was in my office. and had a number of, you know, public relations people that they had hired. I don't know if they had a retainer or what, but they were also in my office, and uh, if they were concerned about the image on the beach, everything that was going on. I looked out my windows and I could see, as far as I could see, were <laughs> satellite trucks and reporters, you know, trying to, uh, you know, setting up their gear and putting up tents and taking up every available space on the, in the, in the police department's uh, on the property line. The girth of this problem, which was, which was really huge, probably the biggest thing that had happened in uh, Miami Beach's history. You know, just kept growing and growing, ballooning. So, uh, you see, it was kind of a big deal. And a big deal it was. Versace was a global icon, which made this an international story. Almost instantly, the entire global press descended on Miami Beach. To illustrate just how much Versace meant to people, Ocean Drive magazine, usually a glossy monthly magazine, put out a special edition of 50,000 issues in less than 24 hours. They sold out within a day. At his funeral, which would take place in a 14th century cathedral in Milan a few days later, over 2,000 people attended, including Naomi Campbell, Princess Diana, Elton John, and Sting. Back in Miami, the media was hungry for any piece of information. There was a bit of criticism on the police for holding back information they knew before releasing it. But from Chief Barreto's view, this was a murder just like any other, and they'd stick to procedure to avoid compromising the case. To strip away the fact that Versace was a global figure and that Cunanan was a serial killer, this was a homicide. And a homicide just like 
any other homicide has certain protocols that we follow and uh, and there's certain things that we avoid in terms of you know revealing information also there were pieces of evidence that was discovered that was unknown to the public uh, but would be known by the perpetrator and those kinds of things were something you keep under your hat uh, that you, you don't give it because you have copycat people come out of the woodwork and and stuff like that and uh, so they, they're used to discredit people when they come up with information so we wanted to make sure that we didn't do anything that would interfere with the tempo of the investigation itself while this worked for the police it didn't sit well with the international press there was extreme competition for who could get a scoop and break some news about the manhunt first according to one report in the miami herald Detectives in the police department suspected the news trucks were trying to use their telescoping cameras to spy on the police conference rooms. Things did escalate with the media. TV reporters tracked down the seedy hotel room Cunanan had been staying in the north end of Miami Beach before police were able to find it. For $20, the clerk let the reporters in the room where they were able to rifle through Cunanan's stuff and contaminate evidence in the process. The police were not happy about that. So that was one of the... Uh think that we were, we were very unhappy with the media about uh, just the, the manner and the way they conducted themselves. It was just, I guess there was this huge competition for, uh, for information, being able to get some little piece of information out there before the next guy. And unfortunately, some of these people in the news media were stooping to some pretty low tactics in order to try and accomplish, uh, you know, or to get the kind of information that would have put them, I guess, in the line. So uh, we weren't very happy with him in many respects. The manhunt continued. Police had a hotline for tips, which was flooded with Cunanan sightings. Yeah, you had a lot of people saying they saw him and they saw someone looked like him. You know, all those leads were, were being pursued by investigators in our, in our uniform division. A lot of them, you know, were, were uh, you can't blame the public when they, they were, I think most of them were done in good intentions, but a lot of them were just falsely. It didn't pan out. Barreto said police also reached out to the gay community. We knew that he was involved in the gay community, so we were soliciting the cooperation of the gay community as much as we could, hoping that maybe someone knew something. Uh, we you know, tried to isolate all his friends. There were tons of theories going around the media, especially as the days ticked on and there were no solid updates. Cunanan's mom called him a, quote, high-class homosexual prostitute, end quote. The press tracked down his father in the Philippines, who refused to acknowledge that his son was gay or a killer. The Miami Herald at the time speculated that he could be hiding among the homeless population, escaped to the Everglades, or snuck aboard a boat to Haiti. There were Cunanan sightings reported all over South Florida, all the way down to Key West. One college student was pulled over at gunpoint because the cop thought the hat he was wearing made him look like Cunanan. Ultimately, he didn't make it that far. He had been hiding out in a houseboat about 40 blocks north of Versace's mansion. Do you have any idea how long he was hiding out in that houseboat? Uh, I assume he went from the scene directly up. He was involved in the whole gay community, Andrew Cunanan. The houseboat had, we learned later, was tied to some group that was involved in gay pornography. We were, and this was all assumption, but we speculated that he had been to this houseboat before, knew it was there, and that's why he went. That he knew that people that he knew 
owned that houseboat. Whether he knew they were there or not when he went there, I don't know. Um, but why else would he have chosen this houseboat many blocks away in the uh, out of, out of you know, literally a thousand of other places he could have gone and fled to? Why would he go there? So uh, we, uh, we speculate that, that you know, we and we learn a lot about his behavior and his lifestyle afterwards. We kind of point to uh, you know that theory being true. Yeah, that he knew something about this place because how would he just randomly end up in this one house out of all of the thousands of houses in Miami Beach? Right, exactly. On July 23rd, nine days after Versace's murder, the caretaker for the houseboat was unlocking the door when he hears a gunshot. He bolts away and calls the police. Of course, he got out of there right away and called the police. Then it became a, you know, basically a SWAT call. But um, we didn't know that that was him, but we suspected that it could be connected. At this point, police aren't quite sure what's happening. They're not sure if it's Cunanan, and if it is, is he going to fire at them? So they try to make contact, throwing those big hostage negotiation phones into the house. When they get no response, they shoot tear gas in the house. Eventually, they breach the house. Upstairs in the bed, they find Cunanan dead, shot in the head with the same gun he used to kill Versace. His body was next to a stack of magazines, including Vogue. I, I don't know what Andrew Cannon was thinking at the point, but he had a TV in there. I'm sure he had seen the kind of coverage that he had seen the roadblocks, seen uh, the things that were taking place that made it, you know, very, very difficult for him to go anywhere and, and get support from anyone. And I think he probably or may have thought that the person at the door was the cops coming in. He decided to take his life. After Cunanan's death and with the search over, there was a sense of relief, not just in Miami, but in gay communities all over the U.S. As news of the suicide spread, according to Vanity Fair, the gay community all the way in San Diego felt relieved they could march in gay pride the following week without fear. I do remember that we did some type of a press conference, you know, basically saying that you know, the, the fear is over. There was a lot of people that were very scared, particularly in the gay community. Because this guy was known to be gay, they were afraid that he was going to go uh, into their nightclub or into one of their venues and, and kill some more people. And I mean, I really kind of feel proud too that uh, Andrew Cannon killed three people. He never lived. He never left Miami Beach to kill again. So you know, we had a problem. He killed someone on Miami Beach, but we resolved it on Miami Beach. So uh, I have a personal connection to the houseboat. Uh, so the summer that this all went down, my mom and I were moving to a condo that was literally right across the street from the houseboat. Uh, I was away at summer camp during all this when this all happened. Uh, after she picked me up, she filled me in on everything and said that she couldn't get in or out of the condo for days because the entire street was shut down from all of the media tents everywhere. Uh, but I do remember the houseboat. The houseboat stayed there for a few years. The doors and windows were boarded up uh, and I would walk by it with my dog, and I just remember it being this creepy-looking building, uh, especially knowing everything that happened and went down inside. It was sort of like a floating haunted house. Uh, and then eventually it did start to sink, uh, and they finally demolished it and got rid of the houseboat. Yeah, you know, the murder of Gianni Versace and the manhunt for Cunanan really was one of those things that dominated zeitgeist when it happened. It was, like, impossible not to be somehow personally affected by it if you were in Miami. Uh, you know, for myself as a young gay guy who was just shy of turning 18 and eager to get out and meet other gay people, it felt particularly scary. 
Like, it's 1997. We have rampant homophobia and discrimination. AIDS has ravaged our community. And now there's a gay serial killer targeting other gay men in my own city. The fear was palpable. As for the mansion, it was eventually sold and turned into a hotel. But it did become a South Beach landmark. One of the things that did come about after post the end of it was that the mansion got on the, all the tours. So all the, all the tour companies you know, had a stop at the Versace mansion. For some weird reason, people really liked to pose on the steps lying down where Versace died. The Versace family sold the home in 2000, but by 2013, the property was sold at auction for $41.5 million to Victor Hotel Group. Reportedly, Donald Trump tried to bid on the property too. The mansion is now called the Via Casa Casuarina and operates as a luxury hotel. Rooms start at $749, or you can stay in Versace Suite for over a thousand a night. Now, this wouldn't end up being the last death at the mansion. In July 2021, two men were found dead inside the hotel in an apparent double suicide. Do you have any theories of, you know, why he killed Versace? Uh, well, all of the people that he killed were, were gay. There was some speculation that he had relationships with them. Uh, we know he had contact with Versace. Now, what the extent of that relationship, we're not sure. We know that he was, you know, a guy that had never, up to this point when he started killing, been in trouble. Really, from what we learned, I mean, didn't even have any minor offenses that I, I recall. But something snapped in him. I mean, I think he he saw himself as becoming famous or, you know, with the relationships he had with all of these people who are all wealthy people. And uh, whether they casted him aside or they, you know, turned him away in some other fashion. And then one day he just decided that all his problems were because of these people. And then he decided to take it out on them. Is one theory that, you know, holds some weight, but it's still speculation because we never got a chance to talk to him. And uh, he uh, left no notes. So we really don't uh, know. And, uh, and the victims aren't talking either. They're all dead. This is time for a shameless plug. If you want to learn more about what South Beach was like in the 1970s, please check out my documentary, The Last Resort. It's available for streaming on iTunes, or you can purchase a DVD through Amazon. Thank you for listening to Paradise Lost, Crime in Miami, where each new episode will bring you a true crime story right from the South Florida headlines. Paradise Lost Crime in Miami is a production of Sonoro and Trojan Horse in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura Network. Hosted and produced by Kareem Tapsh, Joey Dowd, and Christian Hatar. Edited by Angelina Mosher Salazar. Fact-checking by Evelyn Uribe and Sara Mota. Engineering by Mane Parra, Daniel Padilla, and Fernando Galaviz. Executive produced by Jasmine Romero and Joshua Weinstein for Sonoro. Kareem Tapsh and Alex Fumero for Trojan Horse. And Giselle Bansis and Kono Byrne for iHeart. Listen to Paradise Lost Crime in Miami on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. 
old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.